we're going to continue in, in John chapter 3. We've decided to walk through the scriptures. It's something that we don't that we, we aren't used to. We're used to topical ministry, which is a ministry where we say, okay, today we're going to talk about marriage, or today we're going to talk about healing, or today we're going to talk about forgiveness. Today we're going to talk about uh, being joyful and happy. And, but we're not going to do that. What we're going to do is go straight to the Word of God and walk through the next portion of the chapter that we are studying, which is the book of John, the, uh, the, the Gospel of John. Now, Jesus, in this portion that we are looking at, which is John 3, verse 11 through 21, John 3, verse 11 through 21, we see that Jesus teaches on salvation. Jesus teaches on salvation. How many of you would like to know Jesus' teaching on salvation? Show of hands, yeah? Because I'll tell you what, I have had people lead me to the Lord on the corner of a street. And I'm like, okay. I have led people to the Lord on the corner of a street. <laughs> And I remember working at Menards last year. I was a very early morning stalker. And um, I'm sure that they're happy I'm no longer doing that. <laughs> as happy as I am that I'm no longer doing that. <laughs> but uh, um, there was this very, very sweet man, customer that used to come once a week, walk through Menards, and he would grab somebody and start ministering to them. And so, of course, us stalkers, that's easy target, you know, like, hey, I'm a, I'm a customer. I need you to come and walk with me. I want to go check out some of the products down this aisle. I'm like, all right, so yeah, let's take a walk. And I could see where he was going. His t-shirt said it all. <laughs> Devil stomping. Jesus freak. And I'm like, all right, yeah, let's walk down the aisle. And uh, he says, he says, brother, God is good. I'm like, all right, here comes a ministry moment. And I thought, man, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say nothing. I'm just going to see how good he is at this. And he started ministering the gospel, and he did a fantastic job. Did a fantastic job. And from then on, we became like best friends. He came visiting me every week. Austin and I, I have a bunch of books that he brought me. you got to read this book this week. <laughs> and so uh, today, we're going to look at how Jesus actually ministered salvation to Nicodemus. Now, our focus is going to be chapter 3, verse 11 through 21, but I would like to go back to the beginning of the conversation and not jump in in the middle only for those of you that may have missed the beginning of the conversation. Now, understand that the purpose of this is, of course, to help us understand how we ought to live out that which Jesus commissioned us to do, which is to reach the world. You and I have been called to reach the world. How are we doing this? And uh, oftentimes we fall over our words. We're not sure what to pray, what to say. And we become intimidated with reaching people because we think if somebody doesn't respond, it is because of how we shared the gospel. And we have to do a better job at this. And since we have been commissioned to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus, we should be looking at Jesus' method in which he evangelized Nicodemus and learn from Christ's presentation of the gospel. See, first, we do not see Jesus running after the rich young ruler. Do you remember the rich young ruler? He comes to Jesus and he said, what must I do to be saved? Because I keep the whole law. I keep the commandments. Now what must I do? And Jesus said, well, 
Take everything you have, sell it, and give it to the poor, and follow me, and you'll be saved. Well, the man, as you know the story, he couldn't, so he walked away sad. And Jesus, the Bible says, loved him. He loved him, but he let him go. He gave him the truth just as is, and he let him go. And the, the disciples said something very fascinating right there. After this man walks away sad, the disciples turned to Jesus and said, Well then, who can be saved? If this guy who keeps the whole law cannot be saved, well, forget that. We can't be saved either. And that's when Jesus said, What's impossible with man is possible with God. But we do not see Jesus running after this rich young ruler, begging him to change his mind. We do not see Jesus dropping the bar lower, second time round, saying, well, you know what, let me, let me require a little bit less. Just sell half of what you have, not all of what you have. And then give that, half of that, profits to the poor. He didn't drop the bar in order to make this man qualify. Neither do we see Jesus promising him an even more prosperous life, with even less frustration. No, Jesus shares with him the truth and then lets him go. You see, we do not see Jesus changing his standards or making the gospel more palatable for Nicodemus either. Just as for the rich young ruler, Jesus does the same thing for Nicodemus. He gives him the truth and then do with it what you will. Do with it what you will. Jesus simply shared the truth. And so evangelized Nicodemus. What have we learned there today? Is that when you and I share the gospel, when you and I sit in a Bible study, when we get together right here in church on Sunday morning, we are very tempted to change the standards and we are very tempted to eliminate some of the verses. That's why we are now teaching exegetically through a whole entire book so that you can see for yourself, actually, that is in the Bible. You know, and it's not like I'm trying to like find scriptures to annoy people with. No, it's actually there. And we actually have to believe what it says or we have to stop claiming that we believe and love the God of scriptures. All right, so we, we have to stop thinking in order to win somebody that we have to become better at reaching people by softening Christ's words, by sugarcoating some of what he says or eliminating some of what the Bible says God is and God does. We should only see ourselves as the messenger and not the author or the editor of this message. We should see the Scriptures as what, as what contains the very power of God. It is the Scriptures that is filled with the power of God, and it is the Scriptures, that very power of God, that can save somebody. But, you see, it is not the truth of God that sets... It's the truth of God that sets people free. It's not my dumbed-down version of the truth. It is not my sugar-coated version of the gospel. It is not my redacted version of scriptures that saves somebody and makes it appealing, sufficiently appealing for that person to now join the church and start serving here in the church. That is not actually the goal. The goal is to serve the Word of God as is and then allow those who truly fear the Lord to gather around the truth of scripture. And that is the church. That is the church. That is what saves a person. 
So here in the beginning of Jesus' straightforward, plain, and clear explanation of what it means to be saved, we pick it up here in John 3, verse 1 through 10. It says now, and by the way, this is what Dave Zadek preached last week, and he did a fantastic job. And I know that you were blessed. I've heard so many good responses. But here we see in verse 1, now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So he was a Pharisee. But then it also says he was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. Note, not as God, not as a Savior, but as a teacher. We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus responded and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's amazing. Nicodemus didn't ask a question. <laughs> Nicodemus was actually talking about the miracles, and Jesus said to him straightforward, you've got to be born again. He just took the opportunity. He inserted it right there, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, can everybody please say born again? Now, that word born again, the term born again, can be translated born from above. Born from above. Not born from humanity, but born from above. Not born in this earth, but born out of heaven. Born again. Born from above. He says, unless a man is born from above, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. He's got blind eyes. Verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, how can a person be born when he's old, he cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless somebody is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh. That which has been born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Now, he is making a truth statement. He is not saying you have to do something as if you did something when you were born the first time. No, no, your mother did something. You just were born, <laughs> right? He says, in the same way, you must be born. Like you were born in the flesh, you must be born in the spirit, and actually it had nothing to do with you. You must be born again. Verse 8. Then he explains how this born-again process works. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it. Then, In other words, you can hear the effects, see the effects. But you do not know where it's coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit. So is everyone who has been born of the Spirit by God. Verse 9, Nicodemus responded and said to him, How can these things be? Nicodemus was offended, and I'm going to show you why he was offended. Jesus answered and said to him, You are the teacher of Israel. So just remember, it's like text message. You know, that when you send a text message and you say, um, you say, um, what's going on? And somebody reads like, what do you mean, what's going on? <laughs> you know, you could interpret, you know, the feel of that statement. And we oftentimes interpret the feel of the statement wrong. Nicodemus says, how can, how can these things be? No, no, he was angry. He was offended. How can these things be? 
Because Jesus just rained on his parade in a big way, and I'm going to show you how. Jesus answered and said back to him, You are the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. You who teach Israel out of the Old Testament about this coming Messiah and how this coming Messiah was going to save God's people. You teach us, and now that it's happening, you don't even understand it. You don't even get the very book you're teaching, Nicodemus. That was Jesus' response to him. Now let's ask the question, who was Nicodemus? First, he was a very wealthy man. He was very prominent. He was very important. He, was a very, he had very elevated status in Israel. History teaches that Nicodemus was one of the three wealthiest men in Israel. But first we see that he was a Pharisee. And a Pharisee was a person, part of a group of educated religious leaders of the Jewish people. As a Pharisee, he was known for his personal piety, for his personal holiness. You might even look at somebody like the Pope or someone. Personal holiness. The name Pharisee actually is the name separated. They separated high there in their lofty ivory towers, totally holy and untouched by the world and sin. He had achieved the highest level of rabbinic law and tradition, meaning the people saw him as the person who is morally superior to everybody else in Israel. He taught that all Jews ought to keep the 600 plus laws of the Old Testament. And as he teaches them to keep the laws of the Old Testament, it was assumed that he was keeping those same laws that he was requiring everybody else to keep. Are you following this? So here he is teaching all these laws and telling everybody, keep these laws, keep these laws to be saved by God. But the next thing is, everybody was assuming that he himself was keeping those laws. And that's a lot of laws to keep. Now, apart from being a Pharisee, number two, we see that he was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was Israel's equivalent to our Supreme Court in the United States. So he was sitting on the highest court of the land, not only as the highest teacher of Israel, but the highest judge in Israel. Nicodemus was very religious, very moral, yet totally lost and completely outside of the kingdom of God, and Nicodemus knew it. The reason he knew it was because, that we know that he knew it was because he searched out Jesus to figure out what the truth really was. Being the teacher of Israel, the moral standard bearer of Israel, Nicodemus was a hypocrite, and Nicodemus knew that he was a hypocrite. He was tormented by the fact that he was secretively as much as a sinner as everybody else was, and kept it to himself that he was as lost as everybody else was, excluded from the kingdom of God as everybody else was, and this was his major problem. This was his torment in life. The people of Israel looked at him as being the closest thing to moral perfection, and he knew that he wasn't that. He knew that he too was a sinner, just like everyone else. He knew he too dealt with corruption as a fallen creature, and the message of morality that he was teaching Israel was not true for him completely. He may have been somewhat better than most, but he, he knew that he didn't live up to God's requirements of perfection. He's tormented in knowing this truth about himself. Well, this resulted in a few things I want to mention too to you. 
First is that he had no confidence that he possessed eternal life. He knew that he didn't live up to it. He knew that he was living a lie. Number two, he was convinced that he was not part of God's kingdom. Otherwise, he wouldn't be seeking Jesus out to find the keys to this kingdom. And just like all the other Pharisees, Nicodemus taught the Old Testament incorrectly. The Old Testament is there to validate Christ and the coming Messiah and to show us our need for Him. Let me just say that again. The whole Old Testament does these two things. It points to Christ, a coming Messiah, and points to your need of Him. It gives you these 600-some laws that you have to like measure yourself by and you realize that you do not live up to it. That's why you need, you need the Messiah it's pointing to. Nicodemus wasn't preaching that. He, with all the other Pharisees, we know, were misteaching the coming Messiah. That's why Jesus had such a big bone to pick with them. That's why Jesus always got on their case. They became just like all the other false religions in the world who demands that you achieve your way into the right relationship with God, who demands that you basically work your way into heaven. How? By faithfully practicing religion, by continuing in good works, checking all your boxes all the time. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm a good person. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm a good person. I'm going to prove it to you. I'm a good person. Good enough for God. Practicing religious ceremonies every time there's a feast. Participate. Practicing and participating in all religious rituals all the time as a Jew. Having a qualifying morality. These are the things, according to Nicodemus, that makes a man right with God. This is what he taught. This is what he believed. This is what he attempted to achieve. But he knew that he was a failure. But Jesus tells Nicodemus... There was absolutely nothing he could do to enter God's kingdom. What? What are you talking about, Jesus? Jesus tells Nicodemus that two things need to happen. First, he says, unless you are born again, born from God, born by the Spirit, born from above, unless you are born the second time, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. Your eyes will be blind. Secondly, he says, this new birth... This miracle of being born from above is, accompl is accomplished by not you, but the Holy Spirit. Who is like the wind, comes and goes wherever it wants, whenever it wills. No man can control the wind, just like no one ever controlled their own birth. Both these analogies Jesus gave Nicodemus were analogies of earthly events no human has control over. You cannot tell the wind where to blow. And secondly, you cannot decide if you were going to be born, when you were going to be born, which gender you were going to be when you were born, what color your eyes were going to be, your hair, which nationality you were going to be, which family you are going to be born into, what your last name was going to be. You had no decision over any of that. Neither do you have a decision over what period within history you were going to be inserted and being born. You had zero control over that, just as you have zero control over the wind. And this is what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. You can do nothing. So here is a man, Nicodemus, wealthy, Important, influential, 
powerful leader of men, leader of leaders. The moral standard for God in the earth in that day. And Jesus is saying to him, you can do nothing. Jesus was in fact telling him, in effect telling him that his entire teaching is in vain and that all of his labor is in vain unless God births you the second time by his will, his way, his timing, you cannot be part of God's kingdom. Wow. Did Jesus strip him of all of his control and his power? Did Jesus strip him of his own will. Your will no longer matters. Not even that matters. Your morality means nothing. Unless God births you by his love and his goodness and his grace and his mercy, the only thing you and I contribute to our salvation is the sin that made our salvation necessary. That's, that's the only thing we contribute to our salvation. Now, you might say, well, Jacques, okay, well, I'm glad I came this morning. I just don't know what the purpose is of learning again that when I minister to somebody, I have, not to, I have to stop telling them that God's going to give them a better life with even more stuff and even less problems. God is going to give you happiness and joy from here on out. And why don't you come and enjoy your best life? Pray this prayer with me. Would you love to do that? I beg you, try it out. Let's do this. Choose Jesus today. Jesus sitting in the corner going like, oh, come on, choose me, choose me. Choose, come on, please, please choose me. Oh, God, I hope he chooses me. You know, it's like, he's like the desperate girlfriend standing over, or hanging on a cross wishing somebody would choose him. Try to save you. Oh, shoot. I was unable to save her. She got away. I mean, doesn't the Bible say no one can pluck you from God's hand? Oh, but everybody seems to be getting away from Jesus. I mean, we're 7 billion people on this earth, and he's only been able to save a fraction. What's going on? Well, Jesus is telling, Jesus is teaching a gospel we don't hear today. He's teaching a gospel to the rich young ruler we haven't heard. He's teaching a gospel to Nicodemus we never hear. So you might be asking, well, why would we tell an unbeliever that there is absolutely nothing he can do to be saved? Why would I as the pastor be telling you there is absolutely nothing you can do to be saved? What is the hope in it? It almost seems a little hopeless and fatalistic, doesn't it? What is, what is so good about this? Why am I being stripped of all of my abilities and decisions and choices and will to do what I know God wants me to do? And that is to receive Him into my heart. Why would you minister to the next person on the corner of the street and tell them, hey, there's nothing you can do to be saved? Do you want to pray with me? <laughs> Why would you do that? Why would you tell somebody, hey, by the way, your morality does not save you? Thanks for trying. Why would you tell somebody your good works mean nothing when it comes to salvation? Your religious activities cannot save you. 
Why would Jesus minister this to Nicodemus? And here's the answer. In order to stop him, this man, Nicodemus, the most moral of all, the most educated of all, the greatest, the standard bearer for all, who worked so hard his whole entire life to get to the position that he's in, it's in order to stop him in his tracks and say, Nicodemus, you got nowhere else to go. You got nowhere to go. You have nothing to appeal to for your own salvation. You don't have a little sugar stick to pull out of the back pocket. You don't have a record of good deeds to, to provide. It means nothing. There's nothing about you that you can appeal to when it comes to being right with God. That is why Jesus taught the way He did. And that's why we need to bring the gospel to people the way Jesus did. People have to come to a place where they're absolutely cornered and they have nowhere to go and they have nothing to appeal to inside of themselves to be saved. Except, oh God, I need your mercy. God, have mercy upon me. I have been stripped. There's nothing I can appeal to about myself. The unbeliever needs to come to this place where he realizes that for a human, salvation is impossible. Luke 18, 26 says, Those who heard him said, after he spoke to the rich young ruler, and so, we can, and so who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. The apostle Paul ministered gospel in exactly the same way in Romans 3.20. He says, Because by the works of the law, none of mankind will be justified in his sight. Again, let me read that. Because by the works of the law, no one, none of mankind will be justified in the sight of God. For through the law comes one thing, the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes one thing, I know I need a Savior. The law comes to you for this reason to say, hey, Brother, sister, you need a Savior because within yourself, it is absolutely impossible. You're hopeless and you're helpless. You're judged and condemned. But the mercy of God is what we can appeal to. The grace of God is what we can appeal to. The goodness of God is what we appeal to. It is the love of God that we appeal, that's what we appeal to. So until an unbeliever is stopped in his tracks with nowhere to go and nothing about himself to appeal to in order to be qualified with God, he will not cry out to God for grace and for mercy. And that's what Jesus wanted Nicodemus to do. He wanted Nicodemus to fall to his knees and say, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Do you remember those two who went to the temple to pray? the tax collector, and the Pharisee, which Nicodemus was a Pharisee, that Jesus was telling the story and he said, so the, tax, the, the Pharisee started in the temple by saying, thank God I'm not like all these people who sin. But in the meantime, I pray my tithe. I do all these wonderful things, but I'm not like these people. I bless you, God. And that's what people do. I praise you, God. I praise you, God, for me. 
But Jesus said next to him there was that tax collector, the one who has never done one right thing in his life. He's only ripped people off his whole life. He has stolen from people his whole life. And he's on his knees banging his chest, God have mercy upon me, a sinner. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man will go into the kingdom and this man will be excluded. Why? Because God gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. Can you see that God points out true humility? True humility is in the knowledge of one's own depravity. It's in the knowledge of one's, one's own sin and wickedness to the point where you can fall on your knees and go, God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. God, have mercy upon me. I'm a sinner. I am. With man, it's impossible. There's nothing I can do to make right who I am and what I've done in my past. There's nothing I can do to fix my sinful nature and, my, and, and erase my sinful record. But God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. That's the humble person. The Pharisee, he was the proud one. And he is the older brother of the prodigal son story. Because you'll see how angry they get when these who have done so much good and achieved so much and are the moral standard bearers in life. And these ones will get angry when they see how God forgive those ones who didn't accomplish jack squat. So we see... While the modern church is giving people promises for a better life, only say this prayer with me right now. Why don't you choose Jesus and all your problems will go away? Jesus, on the other hand, shares a very different gospel, a gospel of grace, crying out for grace. And the only ones that will cry for grace and mercy are the ones who have been given a heart and open eyes and open ears to see the truth of God. Now let's go to John chapter 3, verse 11. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, this is the next thing Jesus is telling Nicodemus in this conversation. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen. And you people, Nicodemus, you and the other Pharisees, do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, Nicodemus, I have given you two earthly examples. The first is of a person who is born who didn't have control over his own birth. In the same way, you have to be born again from God, by God's will, the Holy Spirit that blows wherever he wants to, whenever he wants to, upon whoever he wishes to. It is a miracle of God because of God's love for that person. God blows upon him and he births him anew, and Nicodemus, I'm giving you an earthly example so you will understand this. I gave you a second earthly example, and that is the wind. You have no control over the wind. You have no control over your birth. But you will not believe that it's because of God's goodness, in spite of your inability, in spite of your depravity, in spite of your corruption, it is God's goodness that He came and birthed you. So what makes you think you will believe me if I start telling you spiritual things? You don't even understand the natural things. You want to argue with me over the natural things because you want to hold on to that which I'm trying to strip from you and that is self-righteousness. 
dead in your religion. Verse 13. No one who has ascended into heaven, Jesus said, accepts, except him who descended from heaven, the Son of God. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent on a stick in the middle of the desert, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up in the same way. Moses had a serpent on his stick. God was lifting up a Savior who became sin like a serpent on the cross. And in the same way, Jesus is now saying to him, as he prophesies his own future, I must be lifted up on a wooden cross for all of this to become true. Verse 15, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. So that everyone who believes will have eternal life in him. I want you to look at the word everyone. Can you see that? This is how people preach that. <clears throat> so that everyone, everyone who believes, come all, everybody, just come. Come to Christ, all. Now, yeah, we should preach and call everybody to Christ, but that doesn't mean everyone can come to Christ. You see, this word everyone is not an invitation. It is a distinction made, not an invitation given. It does not read anyone who wants to come. So that everyone who wants to believe will have eternal life. No. It says, it makes a distinction that those who believe is a category of people, a category of people. And Jesus' statement is pointing to that category of people, the believers. So that everyone who believes, all believers, all believers will have eternal life in Him. Verse 16. And here is the most famous verse in all of the Bible. See it in... People's shirts, hold it as flags at sporting events. Everybody can quote this verse. Verse 16, it was Jesus telling Nicodemus the gospel. He says, for God so loved the world. Now, you and I love this verse. Nicodemus hated this verse. I'm going to show you why. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that, here we go again, everyone who believes in Him, it's not an invitation given, it's a distinction made, of all believers, everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Just like the prodigal son. Here Nicodemus had to be sideswiped in a big way. Number one, God so loved the world. Nicodemus probably looked at Jesus and said, actually, I, I don't, you got this all, where have you been? God hates the world. He loves Israel. He hates Israel's enemies. He doesn't love the world. He loves us. You see, this was, this was ancient racism. And it's really racism throughout all of ancient times. No, no, no. It's the Jew God chose. It's the Jew God loves. And everybody else, He rejects. He hates the, the enemies of Israel. And you, Jesus, is saying, for God so loved the world. What in the world? And then it says that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes 
Whosoever believes, that category of people called the believers, that category, that distinction made of a certain group of people, the believers, is that all they have to do is believe and they will be saved? No, I thought it was everyone who obeys the laws that I teach. Everybody who fulfills all these 600 and some laws and lives before God and, and is faithful with all the, all the religious ceremonies and rituals and so forth. No, no, no. Jesus said, no. God loved the whole world, by the way, Nicodemus. Not just you and yours. And on top of that, He saves all those who believe and who don't necessarily obey you and all your laws. Well, He was shattered by this. Just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, Nicodemus had to deal with the fact that God the Father is going to have mercy on whom He chooses to have mercy. And He was going to bless whomever He chooses to bless. And it's going to be people from across the whole globe, the whole world. Verse 18. The one who believes in Him is not judged, Jesus said. The one who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. Watch this. Judgment came to those who didn't believe in Jesus. Well, in Nicodemus' mind, judgment came to all those who rejected the law. But here Jesus is saying judgment comes to those who don't accept Christ. Think about this, this for a moment. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Many say... Well, if God loved, then why did He only give one way? Why didn't He give 16 ways to, save, to be saved? Why just one? Love would make every possible way available. Why didn't He love enough to make two ways, three ways? I think that's the wrong question. The right question is, considering who we are, how is it possible that God even made one way? That He would even make one way is a miracle. That is actual grace and mercy. That's the question to ask. Like God, after all, that you would even make a way. How about demanding that He makes more? So you don't have to choose Christ. Well, for God so loved the world, the Bible says, that He gave His Son. And those who believe in His Son will be saved. But... If you read between the lines, you will hear, but God does not love the world enough to save the world who rejects this one and only Son of His. There's a gospel called the gospel of love. God's going to save you. Why? Because He loves you. Not true. He says very clearly here to Nicodemus, who was looking for another way based upon his own merit, he was saying to this Nicodemus, For God so loved the world that whoever chooses Him will be saved. God has so much love, but He does not have love enough to save the person who rejects His only one way, Jesus. Verse 19, And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. People love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light so that his deeds will be exposed, will not be exposed. So, question, why do people love the darkness? Because they are evil and they do not want the light 
to expose the fact that they are evil. Right? <laughs> That's why people hide in the darkness. But in the same way, as it is true in the natural, so it is true in the spiritual, people who live in the darkness, attempting to hide their crimes, so it is in the spiritual realm, people who run from Christ, run from Christ for this reason, they're trying to hide just how wicked, fallen, and depraved they really are. They're trying to hide their sin. Just like Adam and Eve ran from God. Verse 21, the final verse, but the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds will be revealed as having been performed in God. If you have heard the gospel preached by Jesus, I really want to encourage us as a church family. We have to realize that the gospel is good news. And the gospel is good news to those who realize they need good news. The gospel is not refreshing to those that you walk downtown and you stop a guy, you say, hey, do you want to be saved? And they go like, saved from what? From your sin. Ah, oh, I'm not a sinner. I haven't killed anybody. You see, that person there doesn't realize just how wicked they are or how sinful they are. Why? Because they don't know how holy God is. They compare themselves to other people like Hitler who have done greater evils than them, and they deem themselves better than everybody else. But because they compare themselves one with another, they become fools instead of comparing themselves with a holy, perfect God. And if they had to compare themselves with a perfect God, they will look to self and go like, I don't match up. I need clean cleansing. I need saving, and I know that it's impossible for me to save myself with a holy, perfectly righteous God. It is so important for us to not reject family of God. This is from, the, from our hearts. Tina and I have been praying for you just so you know that our church family would realize that we have to receive the gospel as it is preached by Jesus, word for word, sentence by sentence, thought by thought, within context. And Jesus very clearly, very clearly shows Nicodemus that he needs more than self. He needs a good God. And that when God has given you a heart that desires mercy and grace, then fall to your knees and thank Him. Because He has performed a miracle inside of you, whether you pray to prayer or not. Most people pray prayers because God has birthed them anew. And they're not birthed anew because they pray to prayer. Because the wind blows wherever it wills. And let's be thankful that God has performed this miracle in our lives. Amen? Are you thankful today?